this is honestly mind-boggling that this has gotten by this far without serious action from the feds or from the the RCMP. All eyes on Mi'kma'ki. Through collective action, we've launched a campaign, and this is something that a lot of people are paying attention to. I respect the right to protest as it's their right to protest. However, when you're blocking access to the boats and the wharf, that becomes infringement on our legally affirmed treaty rights. So that constitution protects our inherent rights to do what we are doing. Like what we are doing is not illegal at all. We have been legally affirmed in court. This is genuinely like, it's our first episode. So thank you so much for joining us on here. Welcome to the New Action Podcast. I'm Alfred Bergeson, a member of the Prime Minister's Youth Council and the founder of Collective Action. And I'm Tristan Olaf, the co-founder and managing director of Nouvelle News, a youth-driven news and media platform amplifying stories that matter. We are young activists and we have conversations about topics, people and events in the world today. Conversations that explore important stories and hopefully inspire action. If you enjoy our podcast, subscribe, give us a rating, and follow us on social media. So why don't we jump into this, Tristan? What have you heard? And I know you've been covering what's going on in Nova Scotia through Nouvelle News. What has your team picked up from the story? It's it's definitely um, an, an interesting story, one that I think started off with a lot of of coverage on social media and then subsequently some news stories that came out that sort of gave this perspective of sort of both sides conflict. But generally what was being heard was that there were Mi'kmaq fishermen who were trying to go out and fish and they were being uh, stopped from from doing so by settler non-indigenous fishermen. I think that the biggest thing that we've seen really has just been this escalation of, of events, something that started out with, with Mi'kmaq fisher traps being taken out of the water and then Mi'kmaq fishermen being blockaded and their boats being blockaded and not being able to leave the harbor. Yeah. And then just a sort of further and further escalation. What did the sort of coverage look like for you in, in Nova Scotia? Dude, it, it's, it's crazy that, you know, this, the first thing I saw regarding this issue was about a month ago. I was on Facebook and I saw that someone that I that I'm friends with on Facebook shared a live stream. And so I tuned into this live stream and it was a young fisherman who was arriving to the the wharf to fish and there were hundreds of cars on his way in and the moment he got out the car he was confronted by a crowd of let's say I don't know what seemed to be maybe 200 people. 200 non-indigenous fishermen who were making a whole lot of noise and the guy who was who was streaming live on Facebook I mean he kept his he kept his composure quite quite well I mean it, it it's definitely I can't believe how well he he kept his composure cuz he was definitely being threatened right off right off the gate from seeing that I was quite surprised by what was happening and initially I thought this is something that might pass in a day or two. However, you know, that I think that was on a Wednesday when I saw that and by Saturday or or Sunday there were more reports of non-indigenous fishermen cutting the buoy lines in the water and and ramming other boats on the water, which was just 
just blew my mind that this is happening right now. Social media definitely became a place where people were sharing a lot of the information because at, at that time, the media honestly wasn't covering a great deal of it. And so a lot of the insight that I got in terms of what was happening was from was primarily from social media. I think that what this crisis has highlighted, and especially the initial coverage around this crisis, is a fundamental deficiency of knowledge amongst a lot of the Canadian public when it comes to understanding treaty rights. Um, so to give a little bit of background, you know, as, as the coverage has come out um, and some facts on the situation, what has been taking place is that the, the Mi'kmaq fishermen have a right to earn what is related, uh, what is sort of referred to as moderate livelihood from fishing. Now, the history of this goes quite a long way back. It first started with the Treaties of Peace and Friendship, which was signed between the governor of Nova Scotia and local indigenous leaders around 1760. And in this case, both parties agreed to certain trade limitations from Mi'kmaq hunting and fishing activities. Now, obviously, with the ambiguities that surround these historic treaty rights, a case was brought up to the Supreme Court in 1999. And there, the Supreme Court affirmed this right in a ruling involving a, a Mi'kmaq fisherman named Donald Marshall Jr., who had actually been charged for fishing and selling eels without a license outside of fishing season. And so what this Supreme Court um, decision affirmed was that the fishermen in accordance with this treaty that was signed in the 1700s, have the right uh, to earn a, a moderate livelihood from fishing in waters at any time of the year. Now, what has happened more recently is that the, uh, in, in this uh, Mi'kmaq nation in Nova Scotia of Sabaganagari, um, they look to basically create their own um, self-regulated lobster fishery which would allow the, the Mi'kmaq fishers to go out, set some of their own traps, obviously within a moderate, um, uh, you know, a, a moderate amount, um, catch their fish and sell it. Obviously, something which is even more necessary right now during a time of, of COVID when people, a lot of people, uh, especially people in, in poverty, are struggling to get by and, and make a livelihood. And so therefore, a perfect time to put, sort of put it into action, this right to earn uh, a moderate livelihood. So turning it back to you, Alfred, in terms of what I've just kind of said there, as someone, you know, living in, in Nova Scotia, do you feel like this right to earning a, a moderate livelihood as it relates to fishing is something that's quite well known? Was it something that you knew about before this particular crisis came to be? It is. I, I, I knew about it because I had Indigenous friends growing up and people who would hunt and, and fish, but I didn't know the details of this. I wasn't educated about the treaty rights in, in school. And I certainly wasn't educated about the right to, you know, moderate livelihood in, in, in my schooling years as well. So uh, it's something that I've, I've picked up growing up, but I think there's an onus on our education system to, to, to share. This is a part of Canada's history. And the fact that there's a large percentage of the population that doesn't know uh, the rights that Mi'kmaq and Indigenous people have in Canada, I think that's a failure of our education system in Canada. I'm not sure how the Canadian government can play a role in that, but you know, certainly I think education is held by the provinces. And if this is not something that uh, they've done in the past, I certainly think it's something that they need to look at is, is educating students in 
in the law and as well as in the in the rights of indigenous peoples because they were here before anyone else was they were here before canada was colonized and and you know turtle island became canada i mean um you know from my perspective having not gone to high school it, it wasn't something that i learned and so all of this was sort of very much new to me what i found wait vi- you didn't go to high school what do you mean I didn't go to high school in Canada. I went to high school in, in South Africa. Right. Um, <laughs> no, I, I just kind of skipped a few steps. I, I spent some, <laughs> So when I first heard about this crisis, I, I went and learned some of these things. But what kind of surprised me was that the fact that this, this right to earn a moderate livelihood, whilst it, it was affirmed through this 1999 Supreme Court decision, uh, it actually hasn't been sort of signed into law um, by the government of Canada. Really? Um, no. So, and, and that, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, from, from the research that I've done. Um, but what that has done is that it, it allows for a huge amount of, of ambiguity, mm-hmm. um, especially as it relates to, in this case, uh, with the sort of um, the mob violence that we've been seeing, um, the RCMP haven't necessarily um, understood how to react. But also in the past, we've seen Department of Fisheries and Oceans officers who have um, blatantly ignored this this right to earn a moderate livelihood from fishing, um, and oftentimes harassed our fishermen and fishers in general. Um, you know, tampered with their catches and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the difficulties too is that there are still these these treaty rights that that exist, and some of them have been affirmed by the courts, but their language hasn't actually been implemented into Canadian law. Um, so it does kind of bring us back to. Um, you know, different actions that, that can be taken from this. Um, and the biggest issue that sort of that this has had is that um, the reason why this crisis has gone on for over a month is that there's just been continuous escalation. Um, and unfortunately, escalation happens when there's no consequences for these initial actions. Um, and so kind of looking at the way that this has all gone down, um, if you have these fishers who are obviously you know, to, to give them, I think, some, you know, representation to a certain extent, like they are jealous that they are not allowed to fish outside of the, um, you know, the fishing seasons. But having said that, you know, these fishers have also seen in the past DFO officers go out and harass Mi'kmaq fishers and take away their traps um, and take away their catches. Um, and so in a way, you know, it seems like they were emboldened by that kind of behavior um, that had been tolerated for, for many decades, or at least since 1999, to go do the same and kind of take law into their own hands, which obviously was wrong, because as we've said multiple times, the Mi'kmaq fishermen had rights. But this escalation went, went further and further. So first it was taking down traps, then it was blockading fishermen, and then we got to a point where Mi'kmaq fishermen's boats were being burnt down. And now, just over the past uh, couple of days, there's been uh, even more escalation, um, so, you know, what have you kind of heard on, you know, over the past couple of days, um, what have you sort of heard on, on your end and, and where do you think this is going to go now? Yeah, this is, this is honestly mind boggling that this has gotten by this far without serious action from the feds or from the, the RCMP. In the last few days, like you said, there's been a van that's been on fire, boats set on fire, the gear of indigenous fisher people getting damaged by non-indigenous fishermen they're setting still trying to set blockades with 
with spikes on the road. And this is all happening while the RCMP stands there and essentially protects the non-Indigenous peoples. They're not arresting anybody. They're not intervening to stop the the harassment and the, the damage that's being done right now. And so I think, you know, when it comes down to it, our, our RCMP really needs to um, step up. And from the top down, from our prime minister down to the RCMP commissioner, I think Canada needs to, Canada needs to truly uh, denounce this, but also take action to make this right and, and, and take action to, protect the Mi'kmaq fisher people. Um, yeah. You know, this is, this is huge. Um, all eyes are on Mi'kmaq. Um, you've been reporting this through Novell News, through Collective Action. We've launched a campaign. We launched a campaign about a week after the first incident. And, um, you know, this is, this is something that a lot of people are paying attention to. If you want to take action, visit collectiveaction.ca and look up the Take Action to Protect Mi'kmaq Rights to Fish campaign. The letter that was created was done by community members here in Nova Scotia, and they have three main asks. And number one is for the government to uphold the rule of law and respect treaty rights. The second is to address the threats, attacks, and discrimination against Mi'kmaq peoples, including from DFO officials, who have unjustly criminalized Mi'kmaq lobster harvesters. And the last one is to ensure the safety and security of Mi'kmaq people as they exercise their legal treaty rights. So this is the this is a campaign on collectiveaction.ca and you can go there and enter your information to take action, to add your voice and to send this to the relevant government elected officials. Um, so far, we've had about 6,000 people. Today, we wow. had 6,000 people have taken action and have added their voice to this. So this is clearly something that, um, you know, people are noticing something needs to change. Um, and I think from the, from the Mi'kmaq community end, while, you know, protecting them and ensuring the safety of, of them right now is crucial, there's also negotiations happening currently around what does a moderate livelihood actually mean? What is the definition of moderate livelihood? Um, so I know that this is this is something that is you know the the government and the Mi'kmaq nation is is negotiating on. I wish I could speak more to it, but I I don't know enough about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think um, you know two things to to, to sort of add on there. Um, you know, number one, there need there needs to be action. Um, you know. As, as we said, the, the harassment of Mi'kmaq fishers as they um, attempt to go out and earn a moderate livelihood from their land, from their waters, um, you know, has been challenged for many years. And I read this fascinating story on um, APTN News um, about a, a fisher named Marilyn Lee Francis, who back uh, two years ago, um, you know, herself was going out by herself, putting out about eight traps every once in a while to catch a small catch of lobsters. Um, and, and herself was just being harassed. She'd come back at the end of the day. She would look for her traps. They weren't there. She would go back and she would find them all sitting outside the DFO offices with no justification. 
That is um, so wild, man. It, it, it really is. It really is. And so, you know, and, and this is kind of what, what's happened here is that because there's been, you know, no action in the past, you know, what the Mi'kmaq fishermen have now done is, you know, they're using, um, trying to sort of use uh, their, um, you know, sort of solidarity to, to protect themselves and in creating their own, um, their own self-regulated fishery. Um, so that they can go out together and, 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 you know, not face the same kind of discrimination you, you get when you're going out by yourself. Um, and sort of to the second point, um, you know, there has to be something that's done at the federal level. You know, the language of the 1999 Supreme Court decision, um, you know, needs to be um, in some way incorporated into law so that there isn't this, this ambiguity. You know, and I think in our first uh, episode of the New Action Podcast, you know, one thing that I mentioned was the difference when it comes to um, people in positions of power between reaction to events um, and actual concrete action. Um, you know, and I, I want to sort of take a moment um, and, and just sort of talk about the what we've been hearing about um, about this from people, you know, at, at the highest level. You know, we have Bernadette Jordan, who is the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans. Um, she put out a statement yesterday on the 14th of October saying, I'm appalled by the reported events in Digby County last night. I strongly condemn the actions of every individual who destroyed property, committed violence or uttered threats. Uh, and then what we heard from the prime minister later on was a, a quote tweet of that, um, which says the acts of violence and intimidation committed in Digby County yesterday are unacceptable. And I join Minister Jordan in strongly condemning them. We cannot continue down this path. We must work together to advance reconciliation and implement First Nation treaty rights. Now, these might you know, sound like you know, statements of, of strength, um, but they are, they are reaction. Um, and if, if it doesn't go further than this, then it is a, an abdication of the need for for reaction um, at, at the highest level to stop this kinds of these kinds of escalations uh, because at the end of the day, you know we are lucky um, that no one has been that no Mi'kmaq fishermen have been seriously harmed, um, and if nothing happens, um, this might be the case. Um, yeah, listen, man, I think you know in in situations like this, and you know I'm also watching what's happening in Ni- Nigeria right now with uh, police brutality. When, when people are protesting and when, you know, people are getting hurt and when things are getting damaged and the government does not intervene to protect citizens, like there's got to be some sort of global organization that can intervene and, and hold our government accountable. So it's, it's sad to see, but um, hopefully, you know, this is we're a month in now and it's only gotten worse and I think we're at its peak and I hope we're at its peak. And I hope that in the following days we have a a resolution on this episode, we have Brooke Willis join us. Brooke is a Mi'kmaq young woman who has been speaking up a lot about the issue. Um, I've been following her on social media and I've been getting a lot of my information from her. She's been on the front lines sharing, you know, sharing pictures and videos of what's happening, but also, sharing ways in which people can support their efforts. Um, all eyes on Mi'kma'ki. Enjoy our conversation with Brooke. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it is truly an honor to um, be able to speak from my own experiences and not only my own experiences, but my family's experience, uh, my community's experience and my uh, Mi'kmaq nation's experience. So 
So I just wanted to start off by saying, as mentioned, my name is Brooke Willis, and I'm actually coming uh, live from my Mi'kmaq community of Sabaganagati First Nation. And with that being said, I would like to honor my ancestors by acknowledging that I am on the unceded, unsurrendered territory of Mi'kma'ki, which is known as present-day Nova Scotia. And I'd also like to acknowledge my grandfather, the late Chief uh, Reg Maloney, who fought hard to protect our inherent rights. I think it's important to have the youth's perspective out there as well, because, you know, I, I'm talking here today as a rights holder, as a young Mi'kmaq woman who has been directly impacted. My brothers are fishers, my father's a fisherman, my cousins are fishermen, my community's fishermen, and my nation. So we've been here since time immemorial, and the fact that we're still here in 2020 and having to discuss these issues, it's really eye-opening to see how how people are, I guess, involved in this and how, like, yeah. There's, di there's a differences of perspectives on what people think and what is like factual points and stuff. Mm. Can you help us, can you help our audience better understand the crisis? Can you explain to us what has been going on and, and what has led to Mi'kmaq chiefs, you know, declaring a state of emergency? Okay, so to start off on September 15th, my older brother and actually my other brother and my father and cousin and community members, you know, just a regular day for them in the morning, trying to go exercise their inherent rights and get to the wharf to get out on the water. And they were met by an unexpected crowd that morning. And from what I've seen, as I was viewing from a, my brother's live stream on Facebook, to me, it personally, it was a bit scary seeing that much people just there because they didn't want us to be doing what we're doing basically yeah it was scary to see like from a point of perspective not at the wharf then i respect the right to protest as it's their right to protest however when you're blocking access to the boats and the wharf that becomes infringement on our legally affirmed treaty rights what i've seen from i guess media is that there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of confusion on what it means to have these treaty rights. So Mi'kmaq people, we are actually unique because we not only have treaty rights, but we have Aboriginal rights, which are protected by the Canadian Constitution Act of 1982. So that constitution protects our inherent rights to do what we are doing. Like what we are doing is not illegal at all. We have been legally affirmed in court. And as recently as the Donald Marshall Jr. decision that was uh, decided actually on September 17th, 1999, which is the 21st anniversary when my community of Sabaganagati uh, launched their self-regulated fishery. And what people fail to recognize is we have a constitutional right to do what we're doing. We have the right to self-govern ourselves. And we've we've seen our Prime Minister, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, we've seen him make multiple statements saying that, you know, like Indigenous peoples are the most, one of the most important uh, relationships that we have. And so I think it's important to note that our own Prime Minister has made statements saying that 
that's Canada's main priority to recognize and implement or not necessarily recognize because as mentioned we've already had our rights recognized as recently as the Supreme Court of Canada Marshall decision and so people fail to recognize that we're not we're not doing this like out of intent to hurt anyone else's we're just trying to you know eat food at the table too and not take food from anyone else's table like this is us trying to practice our tradition and you know connect to our ancestors this is this is a way for us to live off the land in our homeland of Mi'kma'ki or present-day Nova Scotia and we're not doing it just because we think we should be allowed to we legally have been affirmed that we have this right so it just it's a little disheartening to see that people still fail to recognize those decisions yeah and I think you know one of the things that you mentioned there sort of surrounded the sort of like the the media narrative around the the crisis there and I think you know from my perspective running a sort of a youth driven news organization you know we're quite interested in inside of that aspect and so what you know what we notice is that during some of these contemporary sort of First Nations crises that we've been seeing over the past couple of years, you know, it's often the media that is the one to, you know, sort of craft the narrative of what's going on. And often that can sort of undermine the perspective of, you know, the Indigenous people on the ground. And so my sort of main question was sort of surrounding, it's kind of two parts. One, do you feel like there has been a uh, quite a big discrepancy in terms of what you've been sort of seeing and feeling on the ground? compared to what you have been seeing is reported on um, in sort of national media. And the second part of it is if you were the one who was kind of crafting the narrative from which people kind of understand what is going on there in, in your hometown, what would you hope is the big picture that the public would take away from the struggles that, that the fishers are facing in terms of protecting their right to fish? You know, I would like to see more people speaking I guess, from a point that is neutral in a sense, because what I've been seeing as a young Mi'kmaq woman, and as mentioned, a rights holder, I've been seeing that there's kind of one narrative that is more at play here. And that is the one where, I guess, we're, we're in a sense being questioned on our sovereignty, because uh, Mi'kmaq people are actually a sovereign nation. And in order to sign a treaty, you need to be a sovereign nation. And so our treaties are actually internationally protected. And there have been studies done by the United Nations. So, um, yeah, so what I I would like to see is people, you know, I guess kind of taking into consideration both opinions or both perspectives, but factually educating on why the Mi'kmaq are doing what they're doing because we're not doing this because we think we have a right. We have an inherent right to exercise our harvesting. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so what I would like to see is, you know, kind of more, I guess, more factual evidence as opposed to one, one perspective, which is what we've been seeing or what I've been noticing as a, as a young Mi'kmaq woman on the front lines. And as mentioned, it is a, it, it is really disheartening to see the blatant rate racism and ignorance that is being displayed here in what is known as Nova Scotia today. So what I would like to see is, I guess, you know, more people kind of 
respecting like why we're doing what we're doing and it's important to recognize that we we do have this right that is constitutionally protected so it's not just something that is you know we have to go through all these kind (laughs) of hurdles to get there but that's kind of what we're seeing like I'm 23 and I'm the next I'm the next generation from this Marshall decision so I was two when this was going on and um, my community actually there was a another dispute in 2000 and and it was again due to fishing and the lack of I guess kind of general education in a sense so I I guess I would like to see more education implemented throughout the province and the country actually on all Indigenous people's rights specifically what a treaty right is and why why Mi'kmaq or these nations um, why do Indigenous nations have these rights to do what they do and you know living more in that path of peace and friendship of coexisting and respecting one another that's been the main goal here all along peace and friendship you know coexist to live together and respect one another but historically as we've seen um it's kind of been one way or the other way i'd like to see more education and i would like to see i guess as a Mi'kmaq youth a a rights holder i would like to see um treaty day being a provincial holiday so i i think that you know, like we should, we should have Treaty Day recognized as a provincial day where we all celebrate this, not just the Mi'kmaq people or not just a handful of people who have an idea of who we are as a nation. So I, I think there's still some work to do when it comes to living and walking that path of reconciliation. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's not an easy question. That was really well said. I think, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, our prime minister said the relationship with indigenous peoples was his number one priority. And, you know, the question is, are we as a country living that on a daily basis? And when we aren't, are our leaders speaking up to ensure that, you know, the rest of the population is keeping that as our number one priority? I was watching your brother's Facebook Live and in disbelief, and I thought, what was happening would be something that would take place in, in one day and be over. But a week later, there were still incidents happening. How have you, you've been on the front lines and, and what have you been up to on the front lines and, and how are youth in your community contributing to, to what's happening right now? So I actually would like to start off by thanking you guys for reaching out once again and to also give thanks to everyone else who has been standing up and standing in solidarity with us and recognizing and respecting our rights fully by giving us a voice. And my, I guess, kind of part in all of this has been trying to get my voice heard and my community's voice heard. And a lot of youth have also been doing the same. And it's not just the youth of my community. It's like the Mi'kmaq Nation, the Wolosto, um, even more, just like all Indigenous people across the nation, we've been getting um, messages of support, not only just Indigenous people, but allies as well, you know, because those those voices are just as important as ours. They're there helping us get our voices heard too. And um, so personally, as mentioned, I've been trying to get 
our voices heard been trying to like share the live streams and trying to share them to like different um like platforms on facebook and just different platforms in general it affects me so so much and it's just it's not personally but it's a collective like we as a whole as a nation and even as indigenous indigenous people like we're affected so as seen like the Haudenosaunee are also facing issues with their sovereignty as well so is like the Wet'suwet'en out in the west and then we have the tiny houses and some other things some other nations who are um, heavily in impacted by I guess like the lack of respect for I guess our Aboriginal rights and um, not necessarily treaty rights but you know these rights to uh, constitutional rights to implement our self-governance so as mentioned yeah I've been just trying to get out there actively help like my family my community just help where I can and be kind of I guess used in any way that I can help and I think what's important is every every voice matters and it's important to note that because geez I'm just well I'm a community member like I I don't have like a big huge title or role or anything in the community itself and I'm just um acting as a as a youth a, a passionate concerned youth about my future and um what really has also inspired me is um I would like to acknowledge kind of a, a wise, knowledgeable woman, um, Pam Palmeter. She's been someone I've been following as well. And she is very educated and knowledgeable in like our treaty rights and our just rights to self-govern as she currently sits as the co-chair, I believe it is, on the Indigenous Governance at Ryerson University. So something she said in one of her, her YouTube videos that really stuck with me as a youth was, people always say like the youth are the future. But she said that, you know, the youth are actually the present. We have to protect the past, the future, and the present. So that has been something that has really stuck with me throughout all this as well. Because as mentioned, I'm 23. I'm the next generation from the last or the most recent affirmed case from the Supreme Court of Canada, Marshall decision in 1999. And we're still here trying to, you know, get people to recognize that we're not doing this illegally this is our legal affirmed right so yeah. yeah so I've just been trying to get out there as much as possible trying to like I said just share other uh, voices and I just want to say thank you again for having me on your guys's podcast I am truly honored <laughs> and it's awesome that you guys are just starting out so I wish you the <laughs> welcome here in Deavers I think you guys are going to do well and I also want to say thank you to you guys for all your hard work that you do to, um, I guess, kind of fight social injustices. And yeah, thank you for all that you guys do as well. Yeah, of course, of course. You know, thank you so much for, for joining us. And, you know, I, I, there's definitely, a, a, you know, I'm sure it's the same for Alfred, but, a, you know, a part of us that, you know, it, it, it can't be easy to be 23 and, um, you know, and kind of be on this, like, frontline environment you know trying to do what you can to like you said protect your your inherent rights and and sort of I think we both feel like you're doing a really great job you know both um, online and and um, agreeing to join us on on the podcast and, and share your words and your wisdom and your story is is really inspiring and I think the thing that you really touched on there is 
oftentimes it's a matter of education, you know, and just making sure that young people across the country and, you know, as you said, the past, the future and the present are understanding of, you know, this really beautiful thing that is the treaty rights that exists within Canada, but um, just making sure that people have the education to be able to respect them and, and understand them and, and foster an environment of, of coexistence, like you said. So Brooke, you know, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you and, and hear from you. Uh, thanks again. Thank you, Will Allen. <laughs> Will Allen, Brooke, take, take care. Have a good night. Thank you, you guys as well. That was an amazing conversation with, with Brooke Willis from Mi'kma'ki. Really appreciate her joining us to, to chat about what's happening right now. She's obviously very knowledgeable about what's going on. And as, as she mentioned, her brother is, is on the front lines. She's been on the front lines. And we're hoping that the issue that's going on right now is resolved in the, in the coming days. Tristan, what are, your, what are your reflections? What are your thoughts after, after talking with Brooke? Yeah, like to sort of echo what you said, a really lovely interview and inspiring as well. Uh, but, you know, also a little bit disappointing, you know, that, you know, young people like Brooke and her brother have to be so involved in this, um, you know, in a crisis that is directly impacting their culture and, and their livelihoods. And um, yeah. So I had a couple of, you know, takeaways there. Um, I think the most pertinent one was something that Brooke mentioned uh, in terms of calling for more neutral people to speak up. I think there's been a lot of support online, uh, but there needs to be more. People have to show that they are watching and that they understand what's going on. They see the dynamics and they are angry that not enough action is taking place at the federal level and at the provincial level too. It's, it's extremely important that the government knows that they will be held accountable uh, if these sorts of uh, indigenous crises and these treaty right crises go um, unimpinged. And I think that brings me to sort of the second point, which is really that, you know, what it, there, isn't, there isn't a lot of uh, sort of, you know, gray areas in terms of what's going on here it really brings us back to the theme which has dominated a lot of this year, um, which is a theme of systemic racism. You know, in terms of what's going on here, there are groups of people who have a right to do what they are doing and they are being targeted. There's mob actions of intimidation against them and there's continuous escalation um, and nothing, nothing is being done about it. But the RCMP was there, I mean, just two days ago um, when 200 um, members of a mob, some of them fishermen, some of them other people from community were surrounding a, a lobster fishery with, whilst Mi'kmaq people were inside and they pelted it with rocks. They were out there. I mean, this is, you know, it's, it's terrifying. Um, and, and at the end of the day, you know, there's just, there isn't justification for this. And I was reading about this, that up to in 2018, the Department of uh, Fisheries website indicates that um, there were around about 979 licenses to fish in the area, um, which most of which permitting around about uh, 375 to 400 traps per license. Basically what that means is that the entire Mi'kmaq fishing sort of operation that's taking place here um, for moderate livelihoods represents around about as much as two commercial boats would take in. Two commercial boats. 
Wow. And so the fishers are coming out here and they're saying, oh, you know, we're concerned about the ability for, uh, you know, the lobsters to reproduce and they're angry that fishings take place outside of season. First of all, they have that right. They have that right for moderate livelihood. The seasons um, do, not, do not impact that treaty right. But second of all, that whole argument uh, is just not real because mm-hmm. it's just, it, when you compare it to the commercial fishing industry, mm-hmm. it's just such a little amount. So those are my, you know, my sort of main takeaways from, from that interview. And I just can't recommend for people um, enough to to speak up, to use their um, their platforms to you know speak in solidarity and, and do what they can to um, encourage action. And as Brooke said, there is action that can take place. Um, what were your thoughts, Alfred? Yeah, I, I think you summed it up really well, and, and Brooke spoke really well on on this issue. We also were planning on having Chief Mike Sack on this episode. We had an interview set up with him, and unfortunately, he wasn't able to join us. But then later on, we saw on social media that Chief Mike Sack actually got in an altercation on the same day we wanted to do an interview with him. He got in an altercation with a non-Indigenous fisherman. And so, you know, when a, when a chief is, is going to the front lines to, to protect his rights, and non-indigenous fishermen are harassing him and and hitting him or, or attempting to, to hit him. And when the RCMP watches that without any sort of consequences for the person who's putting forward that harm, you know, this is this is not good. This is not good. And so I, I don't know, if, I don't have much else to say other than if you if you want to add your voice to this, there's a collective action campaign online at collectiveaction.ca. Uh, you can add your voice to a list of demands that have been created, and hopefully, by adding your voice, it will lead to to change very soon because this has been going on for too long and it needs to come to an end. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully at some point we will get a chance to speak to Chief Mike Mike Sack. Um, obviously, he was the the chief of the Sabaganagiri First Nations uh, out there, and he's trying to be a you know a communicator. And some things that we've read that he said, and you know, in the past days, he is calling for action. He says actions speak louder than words, um, and and that is that is very much the case. And it was an issue that started out um, as you know a need for. For treaty rights to be affirmed, um, you know, for RCMP officers and DFO uh, to be better informed in terms of their need to protect these rights, which are affirmed by the Supreme Court. But because this hasn't taken place, because the, the escalation of this crisis hasn't been dealt with effectively by the authorities or the provincial or federal government, um, it's now not just a, uh, a, a treaty rights crisis, it's a safety crisis. And these fisher, uh, these fishers, are in need of of protection, um, and and that is the escalation, and, and that's what happens when these kinds of things aren't met with correct action, and you know when the indigenous people who are facing uh, discrimination, they are facing attacks on their livelihood and on their rights in this case uh, for moderate livelihoods, when the leaders don't stand up and use their platform and say. These fishers are allowed to do what they're doing and they should not be accosted. They should not be intimidated. 
you know, this is what takes place. So um, if possible, everyone who can sign the collective action petition, call on, on leaders to, to do what they can to speak louder, um, you know, uh, and let's keep doing what we can. Uh, Alfred, it's been a pleasure to record this this first interview with you. A great uh, first interview with Brooke also. Yeah, yeah, and we've we finally got around to creating a social media. We have logos. You can find us online at New Action Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and you can listen to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give us a five-star rating, follow us on social media, and share this with your friends. Maybe they don't know enough about this issue. Um, or maybe people are, are wondering how to find out more. Well, this, this, this podcast might be a medium to find out more about the issue. So please share this with your friends and take action if you can. Take care. If you enjoy our podcast, subscribe, give us a rating, and follow us on social media.